0: We're glad that you're here with us today. We really are. Recording is like the highlight of our week. So we're happy to share these crazy stories that we've been researching with you. (laughs) So today we're going to cover a case that has a connection to our very first case that we ever covered. Yeah, Bruce MacArthur. He was one of Canada's worst serial killers. We talked about him. It's called the Landscape Killer. Have you all listened to it yet? If you haven't, you should go back and do it. Okay, so while we were preparing for our live show, we wanted to focus on a canine Canadian detective. We found one whose name was Major. And he had been pivotal in discovering the human remains during the Bruce MacArthur case. He was the one that actually found the body parts in the planters. Yeah, police were focusing on the grounds and the shed area, but Major kept sniffing out and directing the police towards these planters, which turned out to have the majority of the remains. And it was quite remarkable because they were frozen to the ground and for him to sniff them out in that cold weather was really an amazing thing. It was such an interesting story to share during the live event, which was a fundraiser for the animal shelter. Yeah, So it fitted nicely. And today we're going to discuss a case where that same canine detective, Detective Major, helps out with finding human remains in this case. Melissa was able to find another case about him. So we're super excited about that. During the live show, I heard a very quick version of this story. And I have to say, I already hate this guy. (laughs) I've only heard 10 minutes about him and I already hate him. So he's a real dirtbag. You're in for a treat. He's such a dirtbag. But before we get into today's case, I want to give you an update on Bruce MacArthur. Yeah, we had a listener reach out to us and tell us a little something about him. That's right. Recently, one of our listeners reached out to us and told us that she had attended grade school with him and that she recalled his performance of Puff the Magic Dragon at a concert and said his voice made such an impression on her that she had never forgotten it. She even made the comment about how strange it was that such an evil person could have such an angelic voice. He really was like a wolf in sheep's clothing. So crazy. And I think it's so awesome that our listeners are reaching out to us and telling us their personal stories. Yeah, how cool that someone actually went to school with one of the dirtbags that we're talking about. Thanks for taking the time to reach out to us. Yeah, we appreciate you and we appreciate all of our listeners. Absolutely. It's amazing to think that somebody actually had exposure to him and then heard us presenting this case later and was so moved by his voice that she wanted other people to know yeah. about it. Yeah, can you even imagine? Nope, I can't. Well, that's <laughs> why when you see on the news when someone's been arrested for murder or a double homicide or a serial killer, the neighbors are always like, I'm so shocked. He was such a nice guy. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the case with Bruce is that he just seemed like that normal guy. Yeah, he looked like everyone's grandpa. So crazy. I was just going to to say, how come Bruce, a total dirtbag like that, got to have the talent of a beautiful singing voice? That is something I lack in my life. <laughs> my family makes fun of me. Every time I'm singing in church, they're like, please don't. <laughs> and I wish I had that talent. The rest of my family, except for me, is musically inclined. <laughs> that's why we talk about blood and gore, because that's what we're good at. <laughs> that's what I noticed when I was editing. And we're like laughing. <laughs> Is this appropriate? We can be serious. We just choose not to. Well, sometimes it's just better to actually acknowledge that this is such a bizarre thing that the only thing you can do is laugh about it. It's true. Right? Because it's uncomfortable things that we're talking about sometimes. Yeah. You just have to laugh just at the bewilderment of it. It's so true. And this one is a bewildering case. So just before lunch on April 19th, 2016, an employee of Charlie's Meat and Seafood Shop in the Broadview and Girard area in Toronto made a grisly discovery. Inside of a hefty bag, they found a lower segment of an adult female torso. Oh, uh-huh. and a segment? A like that segment. means not even a full torso. No, nope, it wasn't. The employees of the butcher shop said that they did not recall the garbage being out back when they started their shift, but they found it there around 1130. Oh my goodness. So someone had put it there while they were working. Yeah. So it wasn't even like a middle of the night drop. Nope. Ooh. In broad daylight. That's ballsy. But interestingly, this is behind a butcher shop. And so these employees that found it were actually quite familiar with body parts, not human body parts, but they were quite familiar with animal carcasses. Right. So how did they randomly find that? From the police reports, it sounds like it was just left outside of the garbage bin. And then when they went to be like, oh, what's that doing there? It opened up. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So this is a lazy dirt bag too. He couldn't even throw it into the bin. No. No, Someone can clean up after me. Yeah. It sounds like he just kind of threw it out back of a butcher shop. Oh, see, I'm always scared when I see a garbage bag left out somewhere I'm always like there's gonna be a human body in there like I'm convinced I'm gonna find one one day <laughs> <laughs> so we were coming home from a hockey game the other night and we passed somebody on the highway and in the back of their car I'm not kidding you was this rolled up tarp <gasps> and I was like oh my goodness it's a body bag potty <laughs> body, body alert alert <laughs> it's totally where our minds go now though yep every time <laughs> mm-hmm. it was really suspicious (laughs) I'm sure it wasn't a body, but...
1: (laughs) That's oh, where for my sure. mind tarp, went. You see
0: rolled up car, body. Absolutely. And that's exactly <laughs> what I thought. Everybody's a suspect now. But unfortunately, this is what these employees found behind their butcher shop. How dramatic for them. And when it hit the news, the reporters kept on asking, do you think the butcher shop has something to do with it? Are they serving human remains? Well, oh, yeah. It was all about the butcher shop, but really, it had nothing to do with the butcher shop at all. But pretty ironic, yeah. right? Behind a butcher shop. Mm-hmm. At the time of its discovery, the torso had very few signs of decomposition in it. So police speculated that it hadn't been there very long. Well, especially if it wasn't there in the morning. Yeah. But it hadn't been even wrapped in the plastic bag for very long. Ooh. Because they found the torso so quickly after they felt it had been put behind the butcher shop, Mm -hmm. the garbage pickup was later that night. And so they actually stopped the garbage pickup and in their address to the press, the police were saying there's garbage pickup tonight. By that time, they wouldn't even say that it was even human remains yet, but they were telling people, please check your garbage. Oh yeah. Please use any unusual garbage bags or anything that have been thrown in your dumpster. Please alert the police and look at your garbage. Wow. Could you imagine? No, but nobody found anything. Nobody found anything. I wonder something like that. Would people actually take the time? I was thinking the same thing. Would I actually think that, yeah, this could happen in my neighborhood enough that I would go search my garbage? Well, you never think it's going to like, oh, it's not going to be in my garbage. Why the heck would it be in my garbage can? Right? But, but that's what happened, I wonder. To, but that's what happened to these employees is yeah. that there' was just an odd garbage bag, and they're like, "Oh, what is that doing there? Well, good for the police. Mm-hmm. I think that was very preemptive to stop the garbage pickups and put that press release out. Yeah, their speculation turned out to be true. The remains belonged to Melissa Cooper, who was a thirty year old recovering addict, oh. known as Kita to her friends. She was supported missing by her family weeks before. Oh, so that's curious to me. Because what was she doing for that two weeks before? Because if her torso was fresh, she wasn't murdered two weeks prior. She wasn't. We'll put the mystery together. Okay. So her family had become worried when she failed to show up for a dinner with her grandma and had not been reachable on her cell phone. Her mother said that it was highly unusual for Melissa not to respond to phone messages. So apparently she was quite active on her phone. Okay. They had been posting photos on Facebook and even put up flyers around the neighborhood, including on the window of the butcher shop where her torso was found. Oh, I thought that was particularly disturbing. That is. She had previously lived on the street and had even spent some time in jail. But according to her family, she was making strides to turn her life around. She had recently got her GED and was planning to go to college to become a professional cake decorator. Really? That's right. Be a cake decorator. It's super fun. She was about to move in with her brother in order to save money for her tuition. So she was really on the track to turning her life around. And that's always so sad when you see a victim who was trying to make those positive changes in their life. Melissa wasn't perfect, but she was making an effort. She had days when she would slip into old habits and this time period when her family was... Was looking for her was one of those times where she had kind of slipped into old habits. So there was activity on her cell phone. So she just wasn't checking in with her family. Oh, okay. The last time that Melissa had been seen was April 14th, 2016. She was seen alive on a security camera in the apartment building at 220 Oak Street in Toronto. Melissa was visiting and drinking with a friend on the 18th floor of the apartment building. Her friend stated that despite drinking a small bottle of whiskey, Melissa seemed pretty sober when she made the decision to leave his apartment saying, I'll be right back. Leave leaving her backpack behind. Oh, which shows that she truly did intend on coming back. Yeah. He assumed that she had gone to visit her cousin, who lived on the 15th floor of the same building. So later, when this friend was giving his statement to the police, he revealed that Melissa had actually left his apartment looking for drugs for them to get high with. Oh. When she didn't return, her friend rode the elevators and searched different floors looking for her. And to think that she's in the building. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Police used the surveillance video of the building to determine that the last person to see her alive was Albert Ian O'Ab. Known as Ian he was a 38 year old self-professed addict who lived in the same apartment building that Melissa was visiting he was currently on probation for assaulting a peace officer and so had to stay pretty close to home oh no that just gave me the chills because he didn't have to even go out to search for his victim his victim came right to him yep that's so sad Albert Ian Ohab was born in 1978 he was the youngest of four children when he was two his parents got divorced and at that time his father was granted custody of him oh wow that's a Unusual. It is really unusual, especially for the time period. Yeah, so mom had some struggles. He lived with his father in Barrie, Ontario until he was 12 when his father died suddenly of a heart attack Aww. and he was returned to the custody of his mother and went to live in North York. Oh my. During his teenage years, Ian began using marijuana and then progressed to crack cocaine and heroin by the time that he was 15. 15? Mm-hmm. Crack cocaine by time he was 15. Yep. That's terrible. His use of drugs regularly in high school led to many run-ins with the law. His rap sheet would include convictions for assault, robbery, obstructing peace officers, assault of a peace officer, criminal harassment, and trafficking. Wow, that's a long list. Mm -hmm. Violence towards women was a reoccurring theme in Ian's life. Well, I wonder if he didn't have a good relationship with his mom. She's got some issues and struggles, if that's where that's stemming from. You see that a lot in men who target women as their victims, often have had a rough relationship with their moms. And that is so true. So in May 2001, Ian was found guilty of assaulting his sister and another woman during a family dispute. It was during this same year, at the age of 23, that he fathered a daughter with a 35 year old woman who had introduced him to the use of opioids. His drug use would become so bad during that year that he was actually barred from seeing his daughter. Oh, my goodness. Mm-hmm. But knowing how the story ends, maybe that's a good thing, I guess. I think so. To protect that little girl. I wonder when a killer has issues with women and then they have daughters. I wonder how that translates. Oh, that is a good thought right? Because is it the same? Cause it's your daughter because she's going to grow into a woman Yeah. I or is there know. an exception to the rule? I'd be interested to research that. A I little. bet you there's an exception to the rule I would and think they're treated so. more like princesses. Yeah. Cause it's part of them, right? Mm-hmm. They're better than all the other women I would bet. Or that they have to treat them differently. So they'll turn out differently. Or they could be, you know, if they had daughters and sons, maybe the daughters are the worst abused. Oh, Hard maybe. To yeah. To beat it out of them. Yeah. Ugh. We're going to have to find a case about that. Mm-hmm. So in 2006, So five years later, he attempted to enter a rehabilitation program to appease the courts to gain visitation rights to his daughter. At that same time, he tried to hold down a steady job. Unfortunately, these attempts were pretty short-lived. On May 29, 2006, he was convicted of harassment towards the mother of his child. He was frustrated over the custody battle and being denied access, and he took it out on her. Of course he did. In 2009, a court upheld the ruling that he was allowed no contact with his child. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. So So zero contact. So that does kind of give you an insight of what his character is like. Yeah, because that takes a lot Mm -hmm. for you to get zero contact. Yeah, to lose all your parental rights, it does take Mm -hmm. a lot. Usually they'll do some sort of supervised visitation or something like that. On June 28, 2010, Ian was again convicted of assault this time, though, it was not a family dispute. So the last two times, they kind of racked it up family violence, or that it was instigated through the custody battle, or the one was with his sister, and so he had had a dispute with her, and then some other girl got involved. But this one had nothing to do with his family. He followed a female neighbor to her work and assaulted her in the street, forcing himself (gasps) on her, kissing her neck and chest. Oh, what a creep. Mm -hmm. It gets better. In his defense, he told the woman, it's not my fault you're so hot. I couldn't help myself. Oh my god gosh. And, and just blamed like, it all on her. Yeah. And to feel like he just has that right. Yeah. Well, it's your fault for being so good looking. He couldn't stop himself. He had no control. Oh my gosh. So during the same time period, a psychiatric assessment was done on Ian by the Center for Mental Health and Addictions. At that time, Ian presented with a personality disorder with overlapping antisocial and narcissistic traits. Oh, sounds fitting. Mm-hmm. In March 2012, he moved to 220 Oak Street to the 23rd floor. So just going back to like that assessment, was he given any kind of treatment? Because it's one thing to get that assessment, but, but if you're not given any treatment or help for that, what does he do? It doesn't say that he ever entered any treatment facility. Okay. He could have refused. It could have been offered. Yeah. But they do know that he did have some, some psychiatric assessment done at least. And okay. it sounded like it was during that time that he went up on those those right. assault charges right. towards that woman. So, this address had a reputation in Toronto at the time. It had broken elevators, chronic bedbugs, and stairways that were constantly being used to smoke crack or complete drug deals in. It was during this time that he met his girlfriend, Anita Famula. They began using intravenous drugs together in 2013. Ian supported their lifestyle by salvaging used bicycles, furniture, and clothing, and then selling them again to other people. On June 30th, 2014, both Ian and Anita pleaded guilty to assault and forcible confinement charges. What? Mm-hmm. They had invited two women over to their house to drink and smoke crack cocaine. The first woman left when the get-together was wrapping up, but when the second woman attempted to leave, Ian prevented her from leaving by threatening her with a knife and then a baseball bat because he felt she owed him money. For the crack cocaine? Well, for something. He just felt like she needed to pay him. She ate his pizza? Like, what the don't heck, know. Ian? I didn't allow her to leave for two days. Two days! Yep. They were holding her hostage until she could get this money. And she didn't have any money. She was at the apartment, but they wouldn't let her go to get money. <gasps> they were trying to convince her to get her father to come and drop money off so that she could then leave the apartment. Oh my goodness. And was there reports of abuse towards her during those two days? They pled guilty to assault. So oh, my yes. goodness. And so he found a little dirtbag girlfriend to do this with him. Mm-hmm. Wow. They were soulmates. this is for the perfect pair when this woman finally convinced them to let her go they robbed her of her valuables including her cell phone and even her prescription glasses which i thought was so odd yeah what do you need those for From this charge, Ian was sentenced to time served, which was eight months, and he was given two years probation. This was in June 2014. Oh my goodness. And so he was still on probation. Remember in the beginning how I said that he was actually on probation again for assaulting a probation officer? Yeah. It was this probation officer that he assaulted. Oh my goodness. From this charge. And -hmm. that's such a small charge for basically assault and kidnapping. Mm -hmm. Because I assume that would have been a kidnapping charge. Yeah. His girlfriend actually served the longer jail sentence. Really? Mm -hmm. She had served a longer jail sentence. And so her probation was actually only a year. That's crazy. I don't understand that when one person gets a longer jail sentence for the same crime. And from all the accounts, it sounded like he was definitely the aggressor and she was just kind of going along with it. Oh, yeah. Like it was him that was yielding the knife. It was him that was threatening to hit the other woman with a bat. Oh, totally. This is his MO. This is what he does. Yeah. On January 20th, 2016, Ian and Anita were using fentanyl when Anita suffered a drug overdose. Oh. So, this is a really, really tough time for Ian. He said that when he came to after getting high, Anita would not wake up and he freaked out. He describes running down the hallways of the apartment building, trying to get help from his neighbors, but no one would answer their doors. He eventually pulled the fire alarm in a desperate attempt just to get some help from someone. Why didn't he call 911? The fire alarm is just going to clear out the building. He just wasn't thinking straight. He's quite a heavy drug user, and yeah. so his, his neighbors are probably terrified of him. So if he's knocking on their door, they're probably like, "No, don't nope. answer that." That's right. He couldn't get anybody to help him, so he ends up pulling the fire alarm just in a panic. I'm sure. Yep. Yeah. Anita never regained consciousness and her death was ruled as an accident. But from this experience, Ian developed a deep-seated distrust of any first responders. He felt that the paramedics that had shown up on the scene were judgmental and that they had not done their best to help Anita. But from all reports, it sounded like she was already gone when they arrived. Oh, okay. So there was not a lot they could do. But his interpretation was that the paramedics just hadn't helped. They had thought they were drug addicts and so they weren't worth their time. Right. Is kind of how he felt. And probably waiting for them, he probably was telling himself, as soon as they get here, she'll be okay. Like he Mm -hmm. was expecting her to come too. Yeah. And from all accounts, he really did love Anita. That is really interesting to go from such a hatred towards women to find one that he has genuine feelings for. But she was a woman that he could do all of those other things with. She was willing to take part in holding somebody hostage and threatening their lives and stuff like that. She didn't judge him. No. She was in his league. Ian also felt that he was judged by others in the building who felt that Anita's death was his fault. See, so that's probably his own guilt. And being the dirtbag that he is, he has to what's the word? Project, project it, that. it. Yeah, he on has to others. project that onto other people because it's too hard to feel mm-hmm. it on himself. That definitely is going to be a reoccurring thing for him. In April 2016, Ian was experiencing significant financial difficulties. He had been given an eviction notice and it even had his cat taken away. His cat? His cat? Oh, when you could no longer take care of a cat. So this was only a few months after Anita had died. that so all he spiraled. This was, he was spiraling. Mm-hmm. He attributed all these things to the rumors that he had been responsible for Anita's death. Right. And you had mentioned his mental health issues beforehand and then this big trauma. And if he's not having any help to deal with that, you can see how he would spiral. Yeah. He blames these rumors for the actions he would later take. Later on, he goes on to tell a jury that other people had actually told them that had he just gotten rid of the body and not called the paramedics that he wouldn't be having all these problems, like nobody would have come and taken his cat away from him and nobody would have given him an eviction notice and thought that he actually murdered her. Right, But nobody did think that he murdered her, right? Well, there were rumors circulating around the building that he was responsible for her death. Right. But that's different than purposefully murdering her. Mm-hmm. But he would say that they thought he murdered her. Okay. Well, yeah. at least that gives us some insight as to where his brain, where is. His brain is right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. We yeah. don't buy it, but at least that gives us well, some insight. Right. Early on April 15th at 1.30 a.m. Ian met Melissa Cooper in an elevator on the 15th floor. Video surveillance showed that the two embraced awkwardly. So there's this grainy elevator footage. Offers her hand and then you can actually at one point in the video see her step away from him as he's like coming at her still. Check out the video. Okay, I'm going to look at the video. Yeah, she goes in to like give him a handshake and he goes in for the hug. And you can see she kind of puts up her hand like towards his chest to kind of block herself and then gives him just a quick double pat. Like, you know, when you want to do a quick little hug. And then he actually starts like hip thrusting on her and she's turning away. So it's kind of like on her hip. He's grinding himself on her for a couple of seconds. So Ian moves into her body and suggestively rubs up against her. Yeah, he totally does. Mm -hmm. It's quick, but he does do it. Well, it's quick because she turns her hip towards him and kind of pushes him away because she puts him in a headlock after that. Oh, oh, wow. And so she didn't want any of that. Yeah. But interestingly, they both get off on the 23rd floor and they leave in the direction of his apartment. Oh, no. So the video footage doesn't have any audio, so you can't tell what they're talking about. You can only kind of surmise what they're talking about. But 13 minutes after this encounter, Melissa's cell phone is shut off and was never heard from again. The cell phone had originally logged activity from inside the apartment, but it was turned off. Police bring Ian in for questioning because he was the last person to be seen with her. So it was just a natural part of their investigation that they just brought him in to question and see okay what happened You know, after we saw you in the elevator. In his story to the police, Ian said that Melissa was looking for a crack pipe and they had made plans for him to provide her with the material to make one. While she was visiting his apartment that night they drank and smoked some crack together. Ian said that he then shot up heroin and passed out in the bedroom, leaving Melissa to use some more drugs by herself. When he came to around 9 a.m. the next morning he said Melissa was lying on the living room floor in the morning light surrounded by the smell of vomit when he touched her she was cold oh no according to his testimony Ian panicked and was afraid to repeat what had happened with his girlfriend Anita so he decided that he could not call the paramedics because he thought that they wouldn't be able to help Melissa just like they didn't bother to help Anita he also thought that they would blame him for her death so he decided that he had to move the body into a stairwell where she would be found by someone else. And in that way, he would get rid of her body and not have to deal with the repercussions of it. The sterols of the apartment building were frequently used by drug users. And so Ian believed that her body wouldn't be as suspicious there if it was an overdose. He just thought he would take it there. Yeah. And so why doesn't he do that? Well, When he attempted to move the body around 9am, there were too many people around. He brought her body out into the hallway. A neighbor <gasps> came out and so he took her body back into his <gasps> apartment. And right by his front door is was the door for his bathroom. And so he shoved, her in his bathtub while oh waiting oh my goodness mm-hmm. and the neighbor never reported like, oh, my neighbor just popped out of his apartment with a dead body. Nope. Nobody reported oh. anything. But I have to keep reminding myself this is a rough building. This yeah, is a, it's rough a rough neighborhood. neighborhood. It's yeah. filled with people the same. And at that time, like it would just maybe look like he was carrying somebody that was passed out. Oh, which true in this building yeah. was probably a common sight. Probably even just to see people passed out, oh, mm-hmm. you know, in the hallways or things too. But Ian describes it as a perfect storm because the bathroom was just right there. And so he needed to put her somewhere and he decided I'm gonna put her in the bathtub. That oh. was a logic. It's like a hotel room where you walk in. And the bathroom's like right yeah, by the door. That's exactly the setup of it. And he decided that the bathtub would be a good place to keep her since he wanted to contain the leaking fluids. <gasps> and I thought, wait a minute. If she was just killed, what leaking fluids did she have? Ah, yeah, she shouldn't have had any yet. No, none at all. So there's line number one. Mm-hmm. A few hours later, he would decide that he would need to dispose of the body in a different way. He rode his bike to a nearby home hardware store where he purchased a hacksaw. Aww. He then returned and proceeded to dispose member melissa's body in a disturbing confession to the police so this is while they just brought him in to see hey do you know where this person went you were the last to be seen with her right he just lets all of this out to the police yeah he just tells all of these things so why go through the trouble like honestly i'm too scared to call the paramedics because I don't want to get blamed, but now the police are questioning me, so I can just blurt it all out. Mm-hmm. In a disturbing confession, he says that after the dismemberment in the bathtub, the pieces were slippery. It was <gasps> like a salmon almost, like, uh, you know, like he grab a piece and hold on to it to put it in the bag, but it fumbled all over the bathtub. And can we just reflect for a moment how horrible that actually is? Like we talk about dismemberment and it just seems like a thing. But if you think about the actual nitty grittiness of dismembering a body. With a hacksaw. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's terrible. And so in his confession, there's no filter when no. he shares these details with the police. Well, yeah. Well, him talking about it being like a slippery salmon. We all know what that feels like. Yeah. Ooh. Ooh. After he dismembered her body into several pieces, he claims to have disposed of them in different places, but was unable to recall the specifics because he was high. Oh my goodness. So he remembers like actually doing it and he tells the police, Yeah, I, I cut her. I remember going and getting the hacksaw. I remember cutting her up. This is what it felt like, but I don't know where the pieces went. Yeah, right. So he has selective memory. Mm-hmm. Ian was arrested on April 29th, just 10 days after the torso was found. Oh my goodness. Police had brought him in for questioning because of the surveillance footage and Ian during that interview confessed to cutting up Melissa's body, but he maintained that he had not hurt her in any way. He had woken up after they had had used drugs together and found her dead already in his apartment. I don't buy it. He was charged at that time only with indecency to a human body and was held in custody because he admitted to cutting up her body. But the police weren't buying Ian's story about what had gone on in his apartment and opened up a full investigation. Good. They began searching his apartment and found that it had been meticulously cleaned with bleach. Ian stated that he had just done a large purge and cleaning because he had had bedbugs recently. Police also interviewed friends and family that had seen Melissa just prior to her encounter with Ian. On May 3rd, an employee at a recycling plant on Arrow Road and Deer High Crescent came across what he believed to be a human hand. The police canine unit was brought into the investigation and the same German shepherd that would later find the human remains in the Bruce MacArthur case, Major, found a right arm belonging to Melissa. Oh my goodness. So that's where Major fits into this case. Wow. He is so incredible. Just as a little side note, there's a whole documentary on Major. So if anyone's interested, you could watch that on him and his career. It's a yeah. pretty remarkable dog. He's retired now, but it is quite amazing what cadaver dogs can do. Yeah. So the forensic evaluation of the torso and the arm revealed there was a significant amount of bruising that had taken place prior to Melissa's death, leading the police to speculate that Melissa had been beaten by Ian before she died. Now, this sounds like a more probable story to me. Yeah. On August 19, 2016, police felt that they had enough circumstantial evidence against Ian to charge him with the murder of Melissa Cooper, in addition to the charge that they had already given him of indignity to a human body. Good. The trial would take place over two weeks in January 2019. Ian pled guilty to causing indignity to a body, but not guilty to first-degree murder. Really? hmm So, he would admit to hacking her up, but not to beating her to death. That's right. He said, nope, I didn't do that. It sounds like he really does have no recollection of doing that. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. The charge of first degree murder would later be dropped down to second degree murder, but Ian would maintain his innocence to that charge as well. So the charge was dropped down to second degree murder because the judge felt that they could not prove with certainty that Melissa had been confined or sexually assaulted. So originally he was charged with first degree because they watched that video that you just watched of him and they thought, no, he was totally moving in on her and they, they had thought that there had been some sort of like sexual assault maybe that had taken place. Yeah. Or that because she had been missing for so long and he had this other confinement charge against him of holding another woman in his apartment, that maybe he had held her there longer than than what they had thought. Right. Because she was last seen on the 15th at 1:30 in the morning, and her body wasn't found again until the 19th. And okay. it was fresh. Yeah, so he probably did have her confined. But they could never prove it. And so they actually dropped down the murder charge to second-degree murder. Even though they thought it was first degree. Even though they thought that there was there was a lot of evidence that maybe supported those things, either she was sexually assaulted or that he had confined her, but they couldn't actually give enough evidence for it. So did any of her, like the people that had seen her on that last day... Did they say she was covered in bruises and stuff? We're going to get there. Okay. Yeah. All right. And then I have another theory. Okay. <laughs> so I'm thinking about that, like, cause that would help too. Yeah. Meant to cement like, yeah, okay. like that Who he could actually beat be her and that kind of stuff. But also my guess is that cause she went out looking for a pipe, right? Yeah. Is yep. that what it was? Yep. A pipe? Yeah. Pipe. Yeah. So she went out looking for a pipe for drugs. He says, yeah, I'll help you with that. He's already grinding up on her. So he's already riled in the elevator. My guess is he wanted sexual favors for that pipe and if she didn't comply i think that's when things took a nasty turn yeah i think that's a logical conclusion yeah of what happened in my uneducated opinion yeah, <laughs> that's right it would be interesting to hear what other people think happened because yeah. this is really one where he's he says he has no recollection and we go with the evidence that, that this happened and this happened but because her arm and a segment of her torso are the only things that are found they really can't even determine a real cause of death yeah how could they or sexual assault that's right Right? Without mm. those organs, like and that. Can't. And that's why they dropped down the charge from first degree to second degree because they didn't have any solid evidence to right. say there was no semen. Yeah. And we don't know how she was even killed. That's right. Oh, this is frustrating. Mm-hmm. So the prosecution relied heavily on the surveillance footage from the apartment building to discredit Ian's story of Melissa just overdosing. They presented the case that Ian had beaten Melissa to death over a spurned sexual advance or a theft gone wrong. Mm. See, that was my theory. Yeah, you are right. On sec- point. I think it's the sexual advance just because he was so hyped up already on her yeah before and then he gets her alone in his apartment and he's doing that in the elevator yeah totally grimy little dirtbag such a dirtbag And they even conceded that Ian might have been too high to recall the murder, but that he had hid the evidence of the beating and the murder after the fact. Ian had knowingly dismembered the body and scattered it purposely to different locations to make it harder to find. For sure. I don't believe that he has absolutely no recollection because if he did, say he did blackout during the murder. Well, depending on how he murdered her, he would be able to see the evidence of what he did. Yeah. The video clip of their meeting in the elevator was examined extensively to gauge the interaction and determine if there had been anything that was suggestive of sexual abuse or coercion. And actually the judge ruled, and this is why they dropped it down to that second degree charge, was that it wasn't a definitive, like just because he rubbed up against her doesn't mean that he sexually assaulted her later. Mm -hmm. And because she followed him out of the elevator towards his apartment, that they felt like she wasn't coerced to go to his apartment. He wasn't wasn't her. her. He wasn't dragging her there. And so that's why they dropped it down to second degree. So each side, the defense and the prosecutor presented their take on what had happened in the elevator. The prosecution said that Ian had lured her into his apartment with the promise of drugs and the defense said that it was just a chance engagement between mutually consenting parties. And it sounds like the judge went with the defense's Hmm. take on it because they dropped it down to second degree. So it was actually during the trial that they dropped down the charge. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. So they're realizing we don't have enough evidence to win for the first degree charge. That's right. Video surveillance from the front entrance of the building and the elevators was also analyzed to show Ian's movements after he was seen with Melissa. Ian was shown clearly leaving his apartment about an hour after the two had met in the elevator at 2.28 in the morning. It was apparent in the video that Ian left wearing a different set of clothes than he had been wearing in the elevator before. So that means blood. When he leaves at 2.28, he locks his door with Melissa inside. Hmm. He knew. He knew. He knew what he was doing. I don't buy it. It's hard to imagine that he didn't know. Okay, so if he's coming out in a different set of clothing, if he has say stabbed her to death in that amount of time, he what he blacks out? stabs her to death and then comes to and knows enough to change his clothes you're not covering your tracks no, no no if you're in that kind of state he'd be walking out all bloody yeah so he's gone from his apartment for approximately 15 minutes at this time and he claims that he left the apartment to go and find some more drugs to do that's why he was leaving the friend of melissa's that she had been visiting earlier in the evening would testify that she had left his apartment with 60 dollars searching for drugs herself but that 60 dollars was never found and he probably did go get more drugs yeah and And it really isn't a big shocker that the $60 wasn't found ever again Mm -hmm. because most of her body is never found again. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. It's believed, though, that it was Melissa's money that Ian had used to purchase the drugs with when he went out during this 2 a.m. outing. Right. The Ugh. next time that he leaves his apartment is also caught on video. It is on the afternoon of April 15th. Ian could be seen leaving the apartment and returning with a yellow and red home hardware bag. Ian would confirm the suspicions that he had left the apartment to purchase a hacksaw to dismember the body. So in the trial, when they show the video of him leaving this time and coming back with the home hardware bag, he's mm-hmm. like, yep, yeah, that's the hacksaw that I purchased to come cut her body up with oh my goodness and remember at this time he's supposed to be so high that he can't remember any of his actions but it was obviously not so high that it would impede him from going to the hardware store like all the way out to the hardware store to get supplies yeah yeah I don't buy it and how he would remember little bits here and there maybe that's how it works though your memory can be a crazy thing so, during the trial, evidence was shown that Ian put a great deal of effort into cleaning his apartment to avoid detection. Again, all the time that he was in this kind of drug-induced stupor over the next few days. Police investigators were not able to locate any visible droplets of blood on any surfaces within the apartment building. Oh, so he was thorough. Despite Ian confessing to dismembering Melissa's body in the apartment. Wow. So, that's quite a cleanup. That is. Mm-hmm. But he did it in the tub, Right. He did it in the tub, yeah, but you would still expect—oh, yeah—to find visible blood somewhere, like on the back of the shower curtain or on the shower curtain rings, the underside of the faucet, where people oh, would for normally sure. think to clean. Right? Oh, yeah, the light switches, the door handle. Yeah, things like that. Yeah, But no, the Luma Crystal Violet application yielded only smear marks and blood found beneath the tiles in his bathroom. Oh. And I thought this was interesting too, that it showed smear marks. She had died of natural causes in the living room. He had moved her body. Why were there smear marks? That would be him dragging her, like the blood with her. Yeah. So the blood that they found was consistent with Melissa's blood type, but there was not a sufficient quantity to actually do a DNA analysis. Wow. Mm -hmm. He had cleaned up really, really well. In the days following Melissa's disappearance, Ian was seen on the surveillance cameras throwing out furniture from his apartment, borrowing bleach, and using shopping carts to move cleaning supplies and garbage bags to and from his apartment. And why would he need to move furniture? Okay, I'm going with stabbing. It was a bloody mess. It had to have been to have those the blood smeared. And if you're having to get rid of furniture, because there's evidence on there, or sexual assault, maybe on a couch or something like that. Yeah, who knows? maybe. But yeah, he got rid of furniture. And he says that it's because he had bit bugs that he was getting rid of furniture. But like some of the furniture isn't like soft surfaces. It's not couches. It's like tables. Oh my gosh. In these videos, Ian can be seen smiling and greeting other residents of the building as he leaves and re-enters the building. He looks relaxed and self-satisfied. In one video on the morning of April 19th, Ian was shown leaving his apartment with an obviously heavy load in one of those like little push buggy carts. You know, those foldable ones that you can take to the grocery store? One of those carts. Wearing gloves and a hoodie pulled down over his face. He returns about 20 minutes later, the hoodie and the gloves are gone. (gasps) So he even got rid of those. Mm Mm-hmm. Ian would try to say that he was not trying to disguise himself while he had removed body parts from the building, but that he was merely extremely sensitive to the cold. After his walk, he had warmed up, and so he had discarded the hoodie and the gloves. Yeah. Who does that? Nobody. No, you're not going to throw away your hoodie. No. Nope. Imagine later being one of his neighbors, having seen him leave with a haul and then later to know like, okay, you're standing there talking to them or saying hello. And there are body parts in that bag. Yeah. Right beside you guys while you're talking. So crazy. Ooh, right. That is creepy. He says that he did the complete overhaul because of bed bugs and that it didn't have anything to do with Melissa's death. On these videos, he seldom looks upset or conflicted. And after he borrows the bleach, you can see him like bounce back to his apartment like he's got a jolly little step. Oh, seriously? Yeah. It's so crazy. Like he skips. Mm. And you would expect like somebody in this kind of drug-induced stupor that doesn't have any recollection or memory of killing somebody. You wouldn't expect them to bounce the way he did. Like it's literally a bounce. Yeah, in the video. So it's like no sweat off his back at all. No, he's he's happy. Happy and and talking to people and. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if you're skipping back to your apartment with bleach, there's something wrong there. Mm -hmm. Watch out for your neighbors, everybody. (laughs) If you see someone skipping and hopping and jumping all happily to their apartment (laughs) with bleach. You can borrow a cup of sugar. You can't borrow bleach. No, don't borrow bleach. (laughs) Don't give it to them. No. (laughs) So because there are only two body parts ever found, the autopsy did not provide a lot of information or a clear cause of death. A muscle sample revealed alcohol and cocaine were present in Melissa's system, but because there was no way to collect urine or blood, a toxicology test could not be performed. The investigation was also not able to conclude if Melissa had been sexually assaulted. That's unfortunate. The examination of the torso revealed that there was clear evidence that Melissa had been beaten prior to her death. Meaning that blood was still circulating to form these bruises. Right. Her lower torso showed extensive contusions on her buttocks that had occurred prior to her death. Oh, so it was a good size piece of her torso then. Mm -hmm. I was just picturing a smaller, oh, a it smaller was like piece. A, cross segment. Huh. a friend that had had sex with Melissa only a few hours before her meeting up with Ian in the elevator said that he could recall no bruising on her body. Okay, so that's how they timeline the bruises—like they weren't there before. Right. So Ian had inflicted those bruises, well, more than likely. More than likely, or I thought that. Well, there's no saying that he didn't put those bruises there, because bruises take some time to show up. That's true. But most likely Ian did it. Perhaps the most damning part of this trial was when Ian took the stand himself. He testified for two days (gasps) and was seen to lecture the court on racism, sexual diversity, and the trials of being an addict. Oh my goodness. All the while, his lawyers are urging him to stop talking. Oh. So I don't know why they would have kept him on the stand yeah, that long. and it's rare even for someone who's being charged with a serious crime like that to even take the stand because usually it doesn't end well for them. So he presented the idea of him sexually assaulting Melissa was absurd because she was transgender and he felt no attraction towards her, despite the suggestive moves in the elevator. He claimed that he had rubbed himself up against her just to demonstrate his acceptance of sexual diversity. Oh, please. I don't believe him. This was his explanation of the grinding in the elevator was that he was just letting her know that he was okay that she was transgender. (laughs) Okay. There's other ways to do that than to assault somebody. Really, right? Yeah. And you think that because he had went up on charges before, that he would know that you just don't rub up on somebody. Right. Yeah. Keep your hands to yourself. (laughs) Yeah. I don't buy it. He even tried to accuse the prosecutor of being overly dramatic and making more out of the story than it was. When he was accused of trying to clean up DNA evidence left behind by Melissa's body. Okay, if there's ever a time to be dramatic, this is a time to be dramatic. Yeah, but he said, you're just making more of this than it (gasps) actually is. So he's totally downplaying it. Mm -hmm. At one point, when asked what happened to Melissa's cell phone, Ian becomes exasperated by the question and says, After she died, I was just in a very bad state. I was throwing a lot of stuff out. I was busy dismembering the body. So... It was so like surreal what I went through. I must have thrown it out. I have no memory of it. I'm dismembering a body in my bathtub. I had nothing else in the world exist to me at that point. I have a major chore, like something so messed up. And you're asking me what I did with a cell phone? I have bigger fish to fry than looking out for a cell phone. What a dirtbag. And he's talking about what he went through. What about what Melissa went through? Yeah. Like, I'm sorry, you did not get the short end of the stick here, buddy so self-absorbed. And what did that psychiatric assessment call him? Was narcissistic? Oh, absolutely. Totally something. Through this whole thing he has been, mm-hmm. when asked what he had done with Melissa's body, he showed little remorse and no comprehension about why the family would be concerned with her remains. When asked specifically about her head, he said I wasn't thinking of specific parts. I wasn't concerned with where the head was going compared to the foot or whatever. They could have found just as easily another body part. It just happened to be the lower torso. I think that went uh it was very small down the garbage chute. Speaking he about the head, head went down the garbage chute. Mm-hmm. He thinks that because it was small, he he must have thrown it down the garbage chute. <gasps> and just no regard. No, it's like literally like cleaning up trash to him. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And all the time he's like testifying, he's talking about like, well, because, you know, nobody helped me after Anita's death. So this is why I was forced to do this. And it was such a traumatic event for me. Yeah. And that's what a narcissist does is they put the blame on other people. Yeah. A big part of his testimony is Ian trying to tell the judge about the hardships that he has had to face since being incarcerated and lectures on how society fails to treat drug addicts with respect and dignity. He often uses these self-serving statements to try and drum up sympathy from his experiences. He was telling stories about what had happened to him in jail since being incarcerated, about how he's had such a hard time in jail and how it's been really (laughs) unjust for him and all these things. Boo-hoo-hoo. At the same time, he's telling these same stories. And remember that Melissa's family is in the courtroom. And the prosecutor is saying, like, well, just tell us where the body is. Give this family some closure. Tell Mm -hmm. us where the rest of the body is. And he's like, no, I don't know what I did with it. Maybe down the garbage chute. But But, but more about me. But let's let's go back and talk about what happened to me in jail. Oh, my gosh. So Mm self-centered. And that poor family never getting that closure. Not knowing where her body parts are. Are they sitting in a landfill rotting away? You know, are they in a dumpster? Well, I guess they wouldn't be still in a dumpster somewhere, but just having no idea. Yeah. So Ian went as far to accuse the prosecutor, the judge, and those present in the courtroom of Melissa's death Oh, (laughs) because they did not provide him with support as an addict. So it's the judge's fault. Yes. And the prosecutor's fault. That's why she died. Wow. Needless to say, his rants didn't gain him much sympathy with the jury. They found him guilty on January 31st, 2019, after just under nine hours of deliberation. And 10 out of the 12 jury members recommended that he not be eligible for parole for 25 years. Yeah, I'd say. During the sentencing hearing on April 24th of that same year, the family had the opportunity to address Ian directly. In her victim impact statement, Melissa's mother, Michelle Ball, had this to say about Melissa. She said, Melissa survived so much pain and trauma in her life on the street, but she was not angry or resentful because of it. She was truly the most compassionate and sensitive person in spite of everything that she had been through. She got up every day and faced the world with her big, beautiful smile. My daughter's death has destroyed me. Ian appeared unmoved by this or any of the other statements that were delivered. While the victim impact statements were read, Ian could be seen smirking as they were addressing him and even interrupted one of the statements demanding (gasps) that Melissa's partner tell him why she felt that she was special enough to address him. Are you serious? Mm -hmm. How did someone not pull out a gun and shoot him in that courtroom? Like he's adding insult to injury. Yeah. He just kind of sat back and smirked. (laughs) And who are you to address me? Yep. Oh my gosh a judge sentenced him on April 24th taking into account his attitude that he had shown throughout the trial and his past convictions. So remember that this actual case is pretty circumstantial. There's not a lot of evidence to say that he really did commit the murder because there's no cause of death. You don't have a body part. There wasn't a lot of trace evidence because he had done such a good job cleaning up afterwards ah. and he has no recollection. There's no witnesses. There's nothing but he is found guilty. That is crazy. I do have a question. Do you, and I know polygraph aren't like 100% science, but was there ever a polygraph done on him to see if he actually had some type of recollection? No, I didn't find anything about a polygraph at all. Hmm. So he received a life sentence with no eligibility for parole for 22 years and an additional five years for defiling the body to be served consecutively. Okay. I He's mean... He's such a dirtbag. He I'm is like, such oh. a dirtbag. He has no remorse, nothing. No. And can you imagine what the parole hearing is going to be like in 22 years from now? No. Hopefully, he'll develop some remorse by that time. Hopefully. Many of Melissa's family had mixed emotions about the verdict and sentencing. One of Melissa's friends expressed the same mixed emotion, stating to the press, I feel a sense of relief, but I still don't feel that justice has been served because we don't know where the rest of her is and we'll never be at peace. That's true. I do feel like there's a larger sentence for something so circumstantial. With them not having all of that evidence, he could have gotten way less. And we see that happen sometimes in the justice system. So even though I think maybe he should be in there indefinitely, yeah, at least he's got at least 22 years. Yeah, that is true. And people do serve a lot less. Yeah. For sure. For yeah. crimes where they have concrete evidence. Yeah. And I just thought closure after somebody dies is so important. Mm-hmm. And for her family, not knowing where her remains are would be so difficult and haunting. I was just going to say that would be haunting. Yeah another friend pointed out the sentiment that is so sadly shared among family members and friends of murder victims. She said, he still gets to breathe. He still gets to laugh and be with his family if he wants to have visits, but my friend doesn't get that anymore. That's so true. And that so many times in so many murder cases, we hear that, that that's one of the main victim impact statements is that no matter how much time that they can be sentenced to, it's never enough because they still get to do those things. Yeah. It's not going to bring their loved one back. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes it so appalling that he's complaining about his conditions in prison. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Like, what are you expecting? Yeah. You're still getting to eat. Yeah. You're still getting to Yeah. You're not speak at the Hilton. <laughs> you know, you're not yeah. at a five star hotel. Yeah. And maybe there really is no real restitution that could ever be enough because honestly, how can you bring a person back? You, you can't. can't. No. But maybe the peace comes from knowing that Ian won't be out on the streets anytime soon. That is true. So, this is a case of the deluded and delusional Albert Ian O'Hab who dismembered the body of a woman to cover up his crimes. That's crazy. He did give me um William Michael Dennis vibes how he had blamed the jury like if the jury had found yes. his ex-wife guilty he probably wouldn't have been inclined to murder her. Yeah. Throughout his trial, it sounds like he blamed the paramedics and their treatment of him of just not taking him seriously and, not, and he actually never says that he murdered her. Right. He won't take responsibility for no. that. But the evidence does suggest that he did. They found him guilty. Yeah. But- so this is a really current case. <laughs> so it'll be a while until he's allowed out. Yeah. Wow. Well, what a wild ride. I'm glad that I got the full story now because I was you had really perked my interest when I heard <laughs> just the little tidbit of it. So. And I find it so... So interesting how some dirtbags just get under your skin. Yeah, and just like you said last week about how when they don't show remorse and they're just kind of cocky and blaming everybody else, it just irks you. It does. So hopefully, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, we haven't left you with a, an irksome feeling, though. <laughs> we'll give you some bloopers real soon to help cheer you up. That's why we put those in there so we can leave things on a positive note. And you can laugh at how dumb we are sometimes. Not dumb, but what's the word? How much we fumble sometimes. That's right. It's real life over here at Buried Motives. Absolutely. Thanks everyone for listening. Next week, Christy's going to enthrall us with another disturbing case. (laughs) Enthrall. I will try. (laughs) That'll be my goal, to enthrall. So make sure you check us out next week. And if you're able, we would love it if you could give us a positive review on apple podcast yes those five stars would be amazing yeah or wherever you listen if you're able to leave a review or rate us a five star we would love it it's a quick little thing that you can do but will really help us out so we appreciate it absolutely and if you're ever on facebook comment under any of the cases for sure (laughs) join the conversation but other than that we hope you guys have a most wonderful week see ya Bye. Something and then it totally flew out of my head. Shouldn't be ballsy, remember? <laughs> That's right. Shouldn't be <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes you should see our facial expressions. <laughs> that was a big okay. I should no, I'm not gonna say that one. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> Is it weird for you when you have to use your own name? Yes. Always a and I did the second time. Funny. At least we're evening it out. Not all Melissa's are dirtbags, but some are. I'm not gonna tell you which one I am. <laughs> Silence, peasant phone. <laughs> Melissa seemed pretty sober. sober. Melissa seemed... <laughs> <laughs> Bite my tongue. Phone. You're just really good at enunciation. Enunci- <laughs> well, better than you, apparently. I keep talking with my hands, and then I hit things and make noise. And you can never see her hand gestures anyway. I know. Why do I do it? When she failed up to show up for dinner with her grandma. She failed up. Yeah. <laughs> It's mm, a mm, good mm. workout when it we is. record. Yeah, Unfortunately, it's just for our cheeks and not our glutes. Wrong set of <laughs> cheeks. <laughs> can I murder all the truck drivers over here. <laughs> we won't tell. We will bury your motives. <laughs> hey, we're live, pal. And we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents? We did now. But we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye.